Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Lauren Groff on her latest novel... The Vaster Wilds. Lauren Graff is a three-time National Book Award finalist and the New York Times best-selling author of four novels, The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, Fates and Furies and Matrix, and two short story collections, Delicate Edible Birds and Florida. She has won the Story Prize, and has been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her work regularly appears in The New Yorker, The Atlantic and elsewhere, and she was named one of Granta's 2017 Best Young American Novelists. And today we're going to talk about Lauren's latest book, which is The Vaster Wilds. Lauren, welcome back to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here in the middle of a hurricane here in Florida. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe the novel. Uh, how would I describe The Vaster Wilds? Um... I would describe it as a propulsive female Robinson Crusoe set in 1609 uh, during the starving time in Jamestown, Virginia, the first permanent English settlement in the New World. And so our main character, the girl, she's simultaneously has many names and no real name. Tell us something about who she is. So my protagonist is someone who would have been so um, small in consideration that she never would have been put into the historical record. She uh, was a foundling. She um, was raised for a few years in uh, one of the little neighborhoods of the time. And then she was shipped out at four years old to work, uh, as uh, was done for orphans in London. And uh, she was raised as sort of a, a girl of all talents. Uh, as a servant, and um, she goes with her her mistress to the New World, to Jamestown. And there things happen, and she ends up um, slipping out into the, the wilderness, into what is less terrifying to her than the civilization of Jamestown during the starving time, when everyone was beset by famine and horrifically brackish water conditions and diseases like the pox and malaria and all sorts of other things. And they were all starving because they planted terrible crops and because the Native Americans got fed up with them and um, were besieging them at that time. So it was a really horrific winter. And so she decides to go out on her own into the wilderness. So you said she's been taken from service in London over to the New World. What is her status within the household then? Because she basically doesn't have any choice here, does she? 
She does not, nor does she think that she should have a choice. I think she's internalized her sense of worthlessness. So no, her status is really low. I mean, she's a servant. She For a while, she was treated like a member of the family, but she's a member of the family who works seven days a week with no rest. And she's not really seen as a, a human on her of her own right. So yeah, when, when the mistress and her um, daughter and her new husband sail off uh, to Jamestown, she, she goes along as sort of an accessory, as someone who's there to make their lives better, but is not given much of a choice at all. And there's something more about her mistress and her new husband, who is a minister. Who are they? Well, her, her mistress was, you know, th- there's someone in the historical record I actually based um, the mistress on, uh, sort of the, the dark lady of Shakespeare. <laughs> This, my version, is someone who uh, was raised in a, a musician's family, originally from Italy, but they came to England to be part of the court. And she is sort of, you know, not not necessarily treated as a um, a gentle person, but she is in a wealthy um, household. She sometimes avoids the sumptuary laws. She she wears the makeup and the clothing she's actually not supposed to wear for her. Um, position in life. And she has all these friends. She has these uh, musician friends, these playwright friends. I mean, we see our favorite playwrights in sort of passing in some of these flashback scenes. Um, Obviously, we see Shakespeare, but, you know, the girl whose point of view this is doesn't know he's him, right? And we see all these are sort of artists of the Elizabethan era. And the girl is sort of raised in this family where arts and music are really wonderful things um, and things that one should aspire to. And uh, then the the mistress's first husband, the goldsmith, dies. And she sort of precipitously marries a much younger uh, minister who decides to go to the new world to become wealthy. And she follows along because she is in love. And so why does he want to go? And I, I say that pointedly because it's his decision. Nobody else has any say in it. Right. He wants to go because he is the younger son of a, um, a uh, an aristocratic family. And he went into the church. Um, and this is his way to sort of equal his older brother, uh, to, to try to equal his older brother, to, to gain the riches of the new world for himself. Uh, so he's ambitious and he's there to to make his fortune. And so just one other character, they have they have two children, a son who stays, and we, we, we don't need to talk further about, but their daughter Bess is much more significant in the story. So tell us something about who she is. Yeah, the girl Bess, she was born uh, a little slow. She doesn't speak. Uh, she, she doesn't really um, interact with people other than uh, our protagonist, who in the household is named Zed, but she's also, uh, her official name is Lamentations. And Lamentations just loves this child. She, she is her own daughter in some ways, even though she's only a few years older. But she raises her and she teaches her what the girl best actually does know. She's a good person. And um, in some of my research, I discovered that there were people of the time who were said to have died of a thought, uh, which I found really poetic and quite beautiful, where they take a thought into themselves and then think about it so profoundly that they end up dying of it. And um, the girl Bess, uh, this is not spoiling anything, but she she does, she dies of a thought. 
And the thought is, oh, th this is a horrific situation that my mother and her new husband have brought me into in this new world, and I don't want to be here. Um, and it's it's devastating for our protagonist to have lost this person who is the best person she knows and the person uh, she loves the most in the world. And the colony then. So you said that it's, it's based on Jamestown. Um, I don't think it's mentioned. I don't think Jamestown is actually named in the no, story, it's not if actually I remember mentioned. rightly. No, it's not named. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, and sort of we can sort of work out location wise where it is set. So. Just tell us something more about, I guess you mentioned, you paraphrased sort of what happened to it, but let's talk about why why they were so ill-equipped to survive. Why the people that went to a number of colonies, let's be honest, why were they so ill-equipped to survive? Oh, there's so many reasons. Right? I think, you know, everything is clear in retrospect. And from what I understand, of course, I'm not a historian of this age, but I've, I've done research uh, in order to write this book. There were a lot of reasons. One was just, you know, arrogance. What a lot of these people came thinking that they were superior and they were going to survive um, because they were born into wealthy families. And uh, at the time, too, a lot of the gentlemen, the aristocrats, just didn't want to work in order to ensure the survival of the whole community. So at first, a lot of the um, the wealthy people just sat around doing nothing. Um, relying on other people. Uh, other things too are there is another natural depth of arrogance toward the Aboriginal peoples of the land, of course, right? I mean, they were coming to the New World in order to take this land, and they didn't really try. I mean, there are some narratives where there were some people who did try to interact with the Native Americans. But of course, it was uh, there was a, a natural superiority that they felt. And so they um, instead of learning from the peoples who have lived here for um, tens of thousands of years, they only tried to trade with the Powhatans and the, the other people of the area. So uh, that was part of it. Um, there were a lot of foolish decisions made. There were a lot of, there was a lot of rust, like wrestling for power. Uh, it was just very complicated. I think you take a really rigid social caste system and you transplant it into a place where everyone really had to pitch in in order to, to make a community that would ensure survival. And I think there's there was going to be a great deal of pushback from um, internalized feelings of um, superiority and hierarchy. Uh, so I would actually blame a lot of the failure on just the fact that they were inequipped and arrogant and the hierarchy really oppressed them all. And you mentioned that you're uh, you recorded this in the middle of a, a hurricane in Florida right now, which is um, quite appropriate because you describe the the crossing of the Atlantic that the the family take, which is absolutely harrowing in the book. It's it's, it's an amazing section of the book. But what actually happened on that crossing? Oh, it was such a it was a terrible crossing in many many ways. So they set off with a number of of boats that um, were actually lost in the crossing. But there was a storm like the one that I uh, talk about in the book, just a horrific storm. And a lot of the boats were separated during the storm. Some of them came back together and came uh, to Virginia together in a, in a flotilla. There was one that actually got sidetracked uh, down to the Caribbean. Um, and they spent a few months sort of filling the boat with food and fresh water and then made it up to 
uh, Jamestown, but there are others that are, you know, on the bottom of the ocean still. So it was just a really wretched, horrible time for everyone. They they came to Jamestown. There was already a group of people who had already been there um, on the first crossing, and they were all those those original people were already starving and dying of disease and uh, and bad water. And then they see these new people come in and they were just so frustrated, right? Because there wasn't enough for them already. And a lot of their provisions were now on the bottom of the ocean. It was just a bad scene all around. <laughs> and of course, the, the starving time came and, um, and really, really horrific things happened. I mean, there's so many incredible stories in the archives about what happened that winter. There's this one really terrible story that I retell in the book about a man who was so hungry and so crazed with starvation that uh, he was found to have murdered his wife, uh, thrown in her the baby that she had inside her into the river and then salted his wife's flesh and kept it in the rafters to feed himself. So, of course, they reverted to a lot of cannibalism. They reverted to a lot of um, actions that I think they would have been appalled by in England before they set off. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lauren Groff. We're talking about her latest novel, The Vaster Wilds. And Lauren, I want to talk about the the landscape in which the book is set, or at least in which the girl goes out into and traverses and tries to survive in, um, which I guess is the sort of Chesapeake Bay area, the various rivers that that come from that and she spends some time on the water. Tell us something about what this landscape would have been like then. 
Well, this landscape had been in the hands of the Native Americans of the time for many, many generations. And they were gardeners of this space. I mean, um, they worked very hard to ensure that there were a lot of nut trees, mast trees, of course, um, fruit bushes and trees all over the place. They cleared out a lot of the undergrowth to have clear sight lines for hunting, right? So even though the Europeans who came um, to the shores would have seen this uh, wilderness, untouched wilderness in their own eyes, it was only untouched because of their own perspective of, you know, these parks in England um, owned by the the rich um, that had been hunted for generations as well. So um, there's just a contrast in sort of what they saw as the primordial forest and the actual reality, which is that these were lands that had been cared for by humans for a very long time. Um, So I think my protagonist doesn't understand, of course, right? She doesn't understand that the the people of the place have been taking care of the place, that there's food everywhere, but she's just, she hasn't the knowledge to understand where to get the food, right? So there are these groundnuts that she could have dug up. Um, There's mast on the ground. I mean, she could have survived if she'd only known, which is one of the terrible ironies of the book. So I mean, it's a it's a very different landscape from the forests that I love now, of course, right? Because um, we don't have many virgin forests left in the northern um, North America. And so there were much larger trees, much older trees, um, uh, thicker strands of trees uh, and the types of trees that have now gone extinct. Um, so it wouldn't have been a forest that I would recognize either um, because we have humans in the centuries since sort of what we call tame them, but actually diminish them quite mightily. Uh, so it, it would have been, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be foreign to modernize, but it was it was definitely foreign to the, this English girl's eyes who only really knew sort of whatever wildlife there was in London at the time. But let's talk about how she does attempt to survive out there then. There's various murders of various cute little animals, first of all. But um, tell us about, yeah, just sort of the way she goes about living out there. It's difficult. I mean, you know, she leaves the fort in um, the winter uh, and she has to, she's trying to make her way to where she thinks the French are. Of course, she doesn't quite understand the scope of the land or the geography at all. So what she doesn't know is is staggering. Only someone who doesn't know this would even attempt it. But she has to find food. She's been starving all winter with everyone else. And it's, it's terribly urgent that she finds fresh water as well. Uh, and um, so she, she has to find fish, right? Um, if she can find them, she has to find whatever animals come to hand. She has to find dried berries. Uh, she basically, you know, has to just do whatever she possibly can to to keep her body alive and at the same time also move uh, toward what she believes is her goal and at the same time um, stay away from the eyes of other human beings, whether they be people sent after her from the fort or the Native Americans all around her. Um, And of course, right, her ignorance there too is unbelievably staggering and she she doesn't know anything about the the Native Americans, and so that that's a, an enormous terror too. There's also wildlife, right? I mean, there are wolves, there are bears. Everything is terrifying to this poor girl. 
I was struck by the, the, I guess the relationship she has is the right word with the meager possessions that she's able to carry with us. Tell us something about how she develops this relationship. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, if you're fighting for your survival and you only have a few things on you, those things take on the, the luster of character, right, and personality. And so she has a sack. Um, she has a, a few coverlets. She has uh, a hatchet, a knife, a cup, and these things. Oh, and her boots. Her boots are her best friends, right? Because without boots, she would have died much. She would die very, very soon after leaving the fort. And so um, these are these inanimate objects take on human-like qualities to her mind, and she loves them so dearly. And like humans, um, sometimes they disappoint her, and it's devastating to her. I mean. She at one point she has gloves, right? And and in the cold weather, these gloves are absolutely important. And when she loses them, it's like losing, uh, it's like losing a friend, right? It's so horrible to her. It was really just my understanding of what it's like to be in nature. You you can only bring a few things with you, and those things take on inordinate importance in your world. These are obviously these people from this time think very differently to what we do. And obviously, you've already mentioned that she's a, a person in particular who thinks very little of herself, somebody who is just uh, worthless in the eyes of most of the world. And I wanted to talk about the relationship she has with God and how that changes over the course of the novel. She has this sort of inner monologue that progresses as she as she, you know, she goes out and stays out for longer and longer. Tell us something about that relationship. The thing that I wanted to do in this book was to take a, a set of received ideas and over the course of the book, turn them inside out, almost gut them and split them open and see if I could find my way inside them. And uh, some of these received ideas are the ideas about God that she had been given as an English person of um, the, the early 17th century, right? And so she she takes these ideas that are hugely dependent on hierarchy, right? On on um, subservience, on uh, being of or not of the elect. And of course, as a female and as a um, a servant, she was very obviously not of the elect. So they would have thought she wasn't going to heaven. She would have thought she would not not be able to go to heaven because she was not. She was shown that she wasn't given God's favor by being a female and poor. So she took all these ideas and over the course of her trajectory through the book, um, she really upends them and starts to come through and starts to see the world radically differently. And that was one that was like the sheer joy of writing this book, to be perfectly honest. You know, there's some bleakness in this book, but mostly I was hoping for the anagogical. I was hoping for sort of the upward spiritual lift um, that that occurs throughout the book. I was uh, even at the same time as her body is maybe descending into a more animal state, her soul is lifting upward. I, that's I, I see the book sort of set in a, a chiastic shape, uh, the shape of a an X, which is really exciting to write, you know, as as one part is going down, another part is going up. Uh, so she becomes more spiritual in nature, even though she um, she becomes much farther from religion. Um, but of course, religion is not the same thing as God. Religion is an interpretation of God. And she starts to understand a different kind of God in nature. 
And I guess to to elaborate on that a little bit as well, this is, I mean, I often on this show, I'll be reading a book that, you know, I don't know, has a killer in it or something or some sort of twist. And I'll have to say, you know, obviously we can't talk about what happens in this book. We can't give away the ending. And, but, you know, who who did it or whatever often is not necessarily like that important to the actual meaning of the book. It's just a good surprise. But I'm really frustrated that we can't talk about what happens at the end of this book because it it really does say a lot about the themes of what the novel is about, where it goes. You've just hinted at some of that in terms of, you know, the, the religious aspect of it. But maybe let's talk about just, I guess, what this book has to say about just the violence of the founding of America in itself. Well, I mean, the founding of America, the continuation of America is predicated on violence. Um, And it's, you know, I I live here. I'm devastated by it um, on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I think when one's religion, when one's nation is founded on genocide on slavery on um uh racial and um you know gender superiority uh that's a really rotten foundation on which to build another few centuries of life um and we are grappling with the with the results of that we have been from the beginning even though some of my fellow white americans uh refuse to um, envisage their own ancestors' um, guilt and, and complicity in these structures. Um, these structures are so violent all the way down to the root that until we actually do address them and until we do look at them with depth and subtlety, we're really not going to to fix a lot of the the evils that are sort of bursting out in, into our our lives now. It, it you know I, I the only thing I can do is write, um, and the only thing I can write is fiction, unfortunately. So I have to grapple with these things, or else I would go insane living in this horrifically violent and um, white supremacist and misogynistic country. So this book is a way of sort of trying to go to the beginnings and trying to to look back at the root trying to see how um religion is the thing that actually made us come to this place where we are now and you know the the americanization of the world um has been so radically detrimental to all of our health um and to all of our sanity that we are now like at the cusp of the anthropocene and I think it it comes from the foundation of this horrible nation, this nation that could be so much better than it is, and um, that I I want to try to make better. So I have to say it's um it's all incredibly complicated. It's all deeply sad, and the only way to deal with my complicated sad feelings is to, is to write about it in fiction. So to finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit? You can, of course. We'll just do the beginning. The moon hid itself behind the clouds. The wind spat in icy snow at angles. In the tall black wall of the palisade, through a slit too seeming thin for human passage, the girl climbed into the great and terrible wilderness. Over her face, she wore a hood drawn low, and she was light, both bony and childish small, 
for the famine had stripped her down yet starker to root and string and fiber and sinew. Even so starved and blinded by the dark, she was quick. She scrabbled upright, stumbled with her first step, nearly fell, but caught herself and began to run, going fast over the frozen ruts of the field and all the stalks of dead corn that had come up in the summer already sooty and fruitless and stunted with blight. Swifter girl, she told herself, and in their fear and anguish, her legs moved yet faster. So I've been talking to Lauren Groff. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Vaster Wilds, which is out in the UK now from Hutchinson Heinemann. Lauren, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. My pleasure. Thank you for dealing with me in this horrible hurricane that we've got going on right now. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.